You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. I want to talk about this God of generosity and hospitality who loves us. You see it in the creation narrative. You see this God of generosity and hospitality who creates this world that we live in. And he creates this space and he creates the li- us in his likeness. It says the image of God, that's, that's what's in us. That for us, it's flesh and bones, but there's something about God's self that is inside of us. So God takes his eternal communion and his eternal community and his eternal love and he makes room into his life, and he welcomes us into that space. God welcomes you and I into his life. That's what the creation narrative tells us. And in his generosity, he creates this world, this beautiful thing. This is how the Hebrew story goes. He creates this whole thing, and he says, I want you to enjoy it. So I'm giving you the beauty of the flowers and, the, and, the, and, the, and all of the beautiful trees and the animals and all the things, and I want you to exercise dominion. Say dominion. He said, I want you to exercise dominion. Another word is, I want you to rule over that. It's it's huge. It's incredible that the God of heaven and earth who hangs the stars in the sky entrusted the stars to us. That is the God of generosity and hospitality. And he doesn't make us like the angels. He doesn't make us like the animals. He places within us something He doesn't place within anyone else, and that is His image. There's a piece of God inside of each one of us. And there's no doubt that sin and brokenness, the reign of sin and death, it mars and scars that image. And we spend our lives unwinding all of that and all that's been done. But it's there. And then He chooses this guy, Abraham, this kind of a no-name guy from this no-name place. I don't know what that is. And, yeah. and he sees this guy, and he decides he's going to make a covenant to him, a promise. But it's not just any promise, a contractual promise. And God promises to be with him all his days. And God promises to bless him. Say, bless him. And when he makes this covenant, he says, I'm going to bless you, and you're going to be a blessing. And out of you are going to grow a people, a nation even, and I want them to be a blessing. So I will bless you to be a blessing. Say, God's blessed me to be a blessing. That's how this works. And that's what Abraham teaches us. This God who welcomes Abraham into his life, into his covenant life, into his blessed life, blesses Abraham for Abraham to be a blessing. Now, Abraham struggles with that like any other brother would. And there comes a point in time where Abraham gets desperate because God made a promise and the promise isn't happening. So Abraham does what we like to do and take the promise into our own hands. Are you with me? Come on now, are you with me? So he takes the promise into his own hands and he sees his slave, an Egyptian slave, a dark-skinned Egyptian slave woman who is a slave simply because she has a different skin and she's from a different place and her name is Hagar. And Abraham in his desperation to see the promises of God come to fruition takes his slave 
and he does to his slave what he should have never done, and he shouldn't have had one in the first place. And he makes her pregnant. And she begins to get abused, chastised by Abraham's wife. And in her desperation, she runs. And she hides. And she leaves her baby to die, not because she is a terrible mother, because she is a victim to a system she did not create. She does not have any power over. And it is hopeless. And I would imagine that in her desperate mercy wants to simply spare her son of the life she has just because she's from the wrong country. And yet, God in His hospitality, generosity, sees her there, hears her cry. Check it. And she is the first person in the biblical narrative who gets permission to name God. She gives God a name. She calls him El Roi, which means the God who sees me. And I get chill bumps every time I think about it. A slave, an Egyptian slave gets to be the first person in the biblical narrative to name God. Come on now. Abraham, this man of privilege and power, gets named by God, even gets a new name. But it's the slave, marginalized, broken, that God elevates and allows her to name him. That's a God of generosity and hospitality. Now, what's interesting is how the script flips. Hagar, the Egyptian slave, abused and bruised by the reign of sin and death, is a part of a people who come into power and eventually abuse and bruise Abraham's people. You, you with me? You ever thought about that? How the Egyptian slave and the Egyptian people come to a place of power and over the course of years, Abraham, who was in the place of power and all of his wealth, now become to the place of the slave. For 400 years, they're crying out, and God and his generosity and hospitality calls Moses. And he welcomes Moses into his divine rescue. Say divine rescue. He welcomes Moses into his divine rescue, and not only that, in his generosity, gives Moses everything he's going to need to fulfill the call that God has placed on his life. Everything he needs. Say everything he needs. Which means when God calls, God gives everything that is needed to live out the call. That is a God of generosity and hospitality. What Moses has to do is participate. Did Moses try not to participate? Y'all remember? Yeah, he tried hard to get out of it. He tried real hard. Did God let him out? Nope. Did God give him a person he needed? Yep, he gave him a staff to do some tricks. Remember that? Like, he gave him everything he needed to do what God had called him to do. That is a God of hospitality and generosity. 
And then out of that, God saves and rescues His people. He hears their cries, Israel, and He gives them everything they're going to need. God welcomes them into His covenant because God keeps His promises even when we don't. Y'all hear me about that now? Like even when we are faithless, as Paul said. Paul said it, not Fred. Paul said it. When we are faithless, God is faithful. When God makes a promise, He keeps it. He's better than State Farm. And it's like he follows through too. He, he, and State Farm does too. Ain't hating. But he keeps his promises. And Israel comes on and he gives them everything he needs. He gives them a law and he gives them a governance, a system of governance. He makes them a nation. But before he even makes them a nation and gives them a law and eventually gives them kings to govern them, which he didn't really want, but they wanted, so he gave it to them because he's generous like that. And he gives them priests to teach them about the law and prophets to hold them to the law. Before he does even all that, he guides them from the slavery place into the place of the wilderness. But he didn't want to lead them to the wilderness. See, here's what happened. There was an 11-day journey. Say 11-day journey. There's an 11-day journey from this place called Kadesh Barnea to the promised land. And so they did what everybody does. They sent out recon spies, right? So the spies go out there and they see that the people in the land of Cana are too big. Even though God had made promises that God can keep, even though he's done what he's always said he was going to do, and he's proven that he uses the people nobody wants to use. He goes out and he sends them out and they come back and they report it to the whole congregation. And so then they take a congregational vote. You know what I'm about to say, right? And the congregation looks at the odds, and they don't like the odds. And after all, it's just Joshua, Caleb, Moses, and Aaron. And then there's the rest of us. And they take a vote. And they vote. We appreciate God's promises and all. But it's just too risky. We appreciate God's generosity and that He has everything we're going to need to do what He's called us to do, but it's just too risky. And the congregational vote wins. And they turn an 11-day journey into a 40-year wandering. Y'all with me on that? Because the majority voice had spoken, the congregational vote had been given, and an 11-day journey turns into a 40-year wandering. Because the old people and the hard-headed folk had to die before they could go into the promised land. That's what the text says. That's what the text says. And God ends up feeding them with this potato chip from the sky, some called manna. Matter of fact, nobody knows what it was because the Hebrew word manna literally translates, what is it? Did y'all know that? <laughs> that's, that's, that's what it means. Manna means, what is it? It was like, what y'all want to call it? I don't know what y'all want to call it. What y'all want to call it? They said y'all back then too. And so they just said, what is it? That was it. Like, what is it? We want some more. What is it? If I don't know what it is, I'm not eating it. You know what I'm saying? But I guess when you're wandering around in the wilderness, you're going to eat it. Well, the way the story goes is God continues to provide and they continue to wine and God provides and they get ungrateful and God still provides because God is a God of, read it with me, generosity and hospitality. He continues to welcome them into his life. They whine about it. He provides for them. They whine about it. He's generous to them. They whine about it. Finally, God looks at them and says, here's the deal. Y'all want some meat? They say, we want some meat. This is how the story goes. One of my favorite stories in scripture, even though it makes me very uncomfortable. God says, I'm going to give you so much meat that it's going to be coming out of your nostrils. 
And they're like, well, we were just kidding. Let's we'll go back to the what is it. And he provides for them because God is a God of generosity and hospitality. And through the law and the prophets, with the priests to teach him and the kings to govern him, he gives them what they need in his generosity so that they could experience his hospitality. And yet in their disobedience and their lack of trust, they, they blow it and then they get separated and exiled and then they come back and they get separated and exiled. And this is how the story goes until for 400 years God is silent and then the silence is broken with Jesus, which is the greatest gift of God's hospitality and generosity of all. Because God gets tired of talking through priests and prophets with words on a page and he becomes a person instead. And he comes and he does for them what they cannot do. He puts skin on and he embodies the generosity and hospitality he was trying to get them to receive. We know how the story goes. Jesus doesn't hang out with the religious elite. He doesn't hang out in the halls of power. Do you really get that though? Because Christianity in America loves some halls of power. We love to get one of our own in power. There is nothing about the biblical narrative where Jesus is hanging out with people in power and it going right or going well for the people in power. Read the story. He's always with the marginalized. He's always defending them. He's always sitting there. He's with the lepers and the lawbreakers, the people nobody wants. When he's with the religious elite, it's a real hard conversation that has to happen. Are you with me? Do you remember? Read the Gospels for yourself. It's all there. He's not just hanging out in the places of influence, levering in his power and position for the good of his own power and position. He's levering in his power and position for the good of everybody else who doesn't have power or position. And that is what he does. And you know it in Hagar. You know it in Moses. You know it in Israel. You heard it in David, the runt of the litter. And here it is, God is putting on skin, coming from the least town, from the least family, from the least tribe, for the least. Oh, come on. Where are y'all at? I had like an hour extra to sleep. Come on. And he welcomes him in his life. That is a God of generosity and hospitality. We live in a land of scarcity. Say scarcity. But we just don't think we have enough. And what we fail to remember is that in Christ, we actually have enough. The problem is we don't believe it enough. So we operate out of scarcity. And yet there's God in Christ and all of his abundance. Are you with me? All right. So then Paul knows this to be true. See, because Paul knows that God can do some crazy stuff because Paul himself was crazy. Paul was a terrorist. Say a terrorist. That's what he did. He terrorized Christians. He killed them in the name of his religion by definition, according to the CIA and the Department of Homeland Security. He's a terrorist. And he's on his donkey or his colt or his horse. Probably not a horse. Probably a donkey. Or if you want to go with King Jimmy's version, he was on his beast. And he was riding out one day to go do his terrorist things, things that terrorists do. And Christ meets him on the road of his terrorism. And into his terrorism offers him redemption. The folks we kill are the ones God saves. Just think about that for a minute. I'm not making it up. Don't send me an email about it. It's in the scripture. See, because Paul knew that Jesus was seen as something treasonous and traitor himself. 
And so the life Jesus lived put him on a cross. When Paul met Jesus off the cross, the resurrected ascended Jesus as Lord, and Paul met him, it changed everything about him. And even though he was see, he became even though he could see, he became blind until he could see again. You remember that part of the story? I once was blind, but now I see. We probably should change the words. I once could see, but then I got blind, so then I could see again. Really has no rhythm and rhyme to it. I don't think it's going to work. No, I don't think it's going to work. And Paul can see, and everything changes. And then Paul gives his life away to welcome the unwelcomable, the Gentiles, the outsiders. Paul is beaten and bruised and stoned and shipwrecked and holding snakes which I wish he wouldn't have done because it could have saved some religious traditions lots of trouble. And, and, he, and, he did, and he did all of this. He did all of this to show that God welcomes those who are on the outside, right? Like we know this because God is a God of generosity and hospitality. And then Paul wants us to realize that we've been sold a bill of goods. Some of us have been taught that it's God's wrath that's supposed to lead us to repentance. That it's you get to go to hell when you die that it's supposed to be what God leads you to repentance. That it's your sin that God had to save you that needs to lead you to repentance. Paul doesn't teach that gospel. Evangelical North American Christianity teaches that gospel. But Paul didn't teach that gospel, y'all. Look at what he said. Or do you have contempt for the, read it with me, riches of God's generosity, tolerance, and patience? Don't you realize that God's kindness is supposed to lead you to change your heart and life? God's not flexing his muscle of wrath to save you. God's not flexing his muscle of power to save you. It is in God's generosity and hospitality that's meant to save us. It is God's kindness over you and over me. That's why I'm giving you the story from creation to Abraham to Moses to Hagar in the middle and then into Israel and then to Ruth, which I think Pastor David Bailey did a great job telling us. And then all the way through into Jesus and the lepers and the lawbreakers and the least, the last, left out and the lonely and all those other folks. God comes and it's his kindness that leads us to change. I had a woman one time come to church. She visited. She said, uh, I want to talk to you in your office. It's always a good sign when a visitor does that. So I met her in my office. She said, uh, appreciate the church here. Appreciate the work you're doing. But I want to ask a question, Pastor. Do you preach about hell? I said, what do you mean? Do you preach about hell? I don't want my pastor to preach about hell. I said, well, then you might need to find a different pastor. I preach about the love of God in Christ Jesus. Because if we care about that, that's what Jesus taught. If you love me, keep my commands. If you love Jesus, you love your neighbors yourself, love's got to look like something. That's where we go. I ain't afraid to talk about hell. Not an issue of afraid. But fear goes away sometimes. So if it's fear that motivates us to Jesus, the fear goes away, where's Jesus? If it's the blessings that motivate us to Jesus, this whole prosperity gospel nonsense, then when the blessings go away, where's Jesus? But if it's love that motivates us to Jesus and the love is of the Spirit, the love doesn't go away. And so Paul says it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Man, if we want people to repent, we need to be more kind. But if I struggle to repent, then maybe it's because I'm struggling to see the kindness of God. 
See, Paul knew, though, that God's gracious generosity and gracious hospitality comes with a cost. So when he's in prison, see, when Paul's in prison, having to write a letter to the church because he's in prison, he says, God has, say it with me, generously granted you the privilege not only of believing in Christ, but also of suffering for Christ's sake. See, here's the thing. We want love, but not the consequences. We want, to be gen- we want people to be generous to us, but we don't oftentimes want to be generous. But let me ask you something. If you're going to be generous, is it going to cost you something? Come on, is it? Yeah, if you give her your money, does that cost you something? Yeah, if you give her your time, does it cost you something? Right? Come on, stay with me. These things cost something. Love has demands and consequences to it. And so God, who is generous, did it cost him something? Did it cost his people something? Yes. We want resurrection, but no cross. But that's not how generosity and hospitality works. Look, man, I was just thinking this month, this is the month that marks four years that Doug Manis died. My friend who had lived through homeless, it took him two and a half years to realize he was living in alcoholism, and he finally gets right, goes to rehab, does all the right things, and he dies on the table trying to get well. I was reading Doug's journal. I inherited his journals. Share a little bit next week. The uh, PG-rated pieces. You should read some of the stuff he said about us in his journal. Like Doug from beyond. One of the things Doug said is he, uh, he mentioned how he was kind of making fun of us. He said, these people keep putting us up in hotels. Keep buying us food cards. They even bought us cologne. Ready, you remember that when we bought them cologne? Y'all remember how Doug, you, you could smell Doug 200 yards away after he got that cologne on. Y'all remember that? He's like, you know, oh, there comes Doug. You can't even see him, but you can smell him before he gets there. That, that what, was a polo, wasn't it, Randy? Was it, was he the one that wore polo? Yeah, I think it was polo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or was it brute? No, man, it was brute because we bought him that like 40 ounce brute. Like it was like, here's your cologne, brother. That was the problem. We bought him a 40 ounce, a brute. And he smelled like it too, but he wrote in his, he wrote in his, uh, in his journal, he said, these people keep doing this stuff and I'm starting to wonder why. They say it's because they believe in God, but I'm starting to question if whether or not I believe too. When Doug died, man, I've shared this with you guys. Jim Golder too. Like Honestly, you spend so much time with people. You love them as family. Easter's and Christmases, Thanksgiving. And then the ugliness of life comes out of nowhere. And I mean in cruel ways. We all die. So it's like, you know, it's a 10 out of 10 reality, right? But he died trying to get well. Where's God in that? But with generosity and hospitality comes the suffering. Comes the burdens you bear. Paul says that it's a privilege, and I'm starting to understand why. You want to see miracles? You want to see redemption? Then you've got to enter into the suffering to see where God does His best work. If you want safety, then you'll miss the miracles. You want to see redemption and where God does His work? Then you've got to be generous with your money, with our time, with our money, with our stuff, with our lives. Jen, how has the journey been for you, sister? 
been hard, honey. Have you been alone? It's worth it. It's called being a friend of the brother and a sister, a brother. So Paul knew. And we learned from Paul. So there's a story that's taking place in Scripture where the Jerusalem Christians are going through famine and they're struggling. So Paul calls all the Christians together and he calls them to give. The Corinthian church had decided to give, but they started getting a little sketchy on their giving because at the end of the day, we've all done it. We commit to generosity, but something else comes up we'd rather have, right? Raise your hand, you ever done that before? Right? Like, like, like you're going to be kind of, but you know, I got, I got my kids have a, my kids have a sports thing. Like I got something going on. Like the beach is looking good. Right? Like, this is, I mean, we just all struggle with this. This is how it works. Well, Brothers and sisters, he says, we want to let you know about the grace of God that was given to the churches of Macedonia. While they were being tested by many problems, their extra amount of happiness and their extreme poverty resulted in a surplus of, say it with me, rich generosity. I assure you that they gave what they could afford. Listen, read this with me. And even more than they could afford, and they did it voluntarily. They urgently begged us for the privilege of sharing in this service for the saints, the ones struggling in Jerusalem. They even exceeded our expectations because they gave themselves to the Lord first, which is where generosity always starts. Not with a sermon, but with a commitment to Jesus first. Trusting that what Jesus has, he has plenty of. Consistent with God's will, as a result, we challenged Titus to finish this work of grace with you the way he had started it. Be the best in this work of grace. In the same way that you are best in everything, such as faith, speech, knowledge, total commitment, love we inspired in you. I'm not giving you an order, but by mentioning the commitment of others, I'm trying to prove the authenticity of your love because Paul knows that generosity is the mark of a legitimate Christian witness. Hospitality is the mark of a legitimate Christian witness. That's why John would later say, don't say, I love God and see your neighbor in need and say, I hope it works out for you. And he said that, not me. I'm giving you my opinion about this. Oh, my bad, I skipped it. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Read it with me. Although he was rich, he became poor for your sakes so that you could become rich through his poverty. I'm giving you my opinion about this because it's to your advantage to do this since you not only started to do it last year, but you wanted to do it too. Now finish the job as well so that you finish it with as much enthusiasm as you started, given what you can afford. 